And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover, open book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Lorenzo Pisoni, who is in a one-man show, Humor Abuse, at ACT in San Francisco through August 19th. Lorenzo Pisoni grew up in the Pickle Family Circus. This show is about growing up in the circus, about the relationship with his father, Larry Pisoni, otherwise known as Lorenzo Pickle, and about what it was like being a kid in the circus. Lorenzo Pisoni, this show started at Vassar College. Somehow you wound up doing a show. What happened? It was my last year at Vassar, and it was Jonah Hoyle, who's Jeff Hoyle's eldest son. We had done some things together in high school. We started coming up with ideas of things that we could do, some of which were recreations of our father's routines, but it was mostly a variety show. And Jonah is an incredible clown, uh, and he's very, very funny and I could be his straight man, so it was a perfect kind of doubles act. And so that's kind of where the first incarnation was, and actually Erica Schmidt, who directed, and uh, we created this version of the show together, she was in the audience when we did that show, because she was also a Vassar student, and she actually started laughing so much at Jonah that Jonah threw her out of the theater because she was being too distracting. Did you guys know her? I actually didn't really know her. We had a lot of friends in common, but I only got to know Erica after we graduated, um, when she started directing in New York. When you sat down with Jonah, did you suddenly say, let's put on a show? Or were you talking and one of you said, let's do the show? My recollection is that I convinced Jonah to do it. Uh, I said, because we had done a few bits in high school, and I said, let's just expand this. Let's do a show for real. So that's kind of where it came from. And not that he was reluctant, but I don't think it was on his brain necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it was a fairly easy thing for us to throw together because of our history together. We've known each other since we were babies. And, of course, putting on a show isn't too far from what, we grew up doing, you know what I mean? So it just kind of came fairly organically. When you were growing up, were you ever thinking about being an actor or a performer when you were an adult? Was that on your mind? I thought I was going to be a circus performer. I, I was pretty convinced for the rest of my life, and I had goals as a circus performer, and it wasn't until I got to Vassar that I actually started thinking perhaps that wasn't what I was going to do. Because, of course, you know, I went to a liberal arts school, and just all this stimulus, you know, and oh my God, there was, there's architecture, and there's art history, there's literature, there's, you know, and that started to kind of expand my brain. And so I never thought, I mean, the one thing, my sister thought I should be a stuntman uh, at one point, and I thought that would be good. I now know better. <laughs> um, but other than that, no, I thought I was going to be a circus performer. And growing up in the circus as you did, that was life. I mean, you knew that you were had an extraordinary life, didn't you? No. No. No, it was my reality. It's just what we did. You know, it really wasn't until Erica and I started working on this show that I even started to think, oh, maybe it is interesting to other people. I mean, you know, of course I knew, you know, people were intrigued by it and whatever, but 
I didn't have the ability to step back and look at it with any sort of perspective because it was all-encompassing. Lorenzo Pisoni, okay, you do this show, Erica laughs, and you're at Vassar, mm -hmm. and I understand when you showed up there, nobody knew anything about you until right. a phone call, and suddenly you did a backflip, and everybody probably flipped out. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, my, my, my roommates, yeah, I tried to keep it under wraps. I was convinced that people were friends with me in high school, and as a child, because of the circus and not because anyone would like me. So I went to Vassar not just kind of keeping that part of my life under wraps until, yeah, a circus director left a, a phone message on, a, on an answering machine when there were still answering machines. And uh, my roommates heard it and they said, what do you mean you have to go do, be a ringmaster in Japan? That doesn't, I don't quite understand, <laughs> what is that code for something? And said, no, I had to explain the whole thing, and they didn't believe me, so we went outside, I did a backflip, and there was that. <laughs> but I still didn't really, my friends started to know about my past. <laughs> um, it sounds so, you know, whatever, suspect. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I didn't, I, I really just was trying to be just a student and just a person at Vassar. So at that point they said, can you juggle 15 items? Yeah, exactly. And then and then the party trick started coming out because right. then the cat was out of the bag and, and that sort of thing. But I was in a dance company at Vassar and, and that was kind of my physical outlet. That and volleyball, but, you know, mostly the dance. Then you put this on the back burner and you became an actor and I want to talk a little about that later. But in 2007, you got the idea of bringing this thing back. What prompted the idea of coming back and doing this show for real professionally the honest answer is that i needed a job i had just moved back to new york from los angeles and i was sitting it was you know snowing out it was just kind of and i had no prospect so i called up jonah and i said let's do this show again and he said absolutely not he had developed stage fright and uh, didn't want anything to do with being on stage uh, not only that, he was pursuing his master's in uh, creative writing. And he suggested that I make it into a solo show, which was slightly daunting because he was the funny one, you know, and I was the straight man. So that's the whole problem. So I just started to try to take the old script that we had kind of put together at Vassar and, and try to flesh it out a bit. And I wrote some new things, and but it was a fairly small, skeletal version. At that point, I had worked with Erica on maybe five plays. So I sent her what I had, and I said, would you read this and just tell me what you think, and would you want to work on it? Not thinking that it would ever be produced anywhere. That's what had happened. And then she read it and liked what she saw and happened to be teaching at the National Theatre Institute in New London, Connecticut. And so they provided us with rehearsal space and lodging and food, and and we kind of whip something together in three days and she was the one that said you know actually what you've written here is a history of clowning which is what the Vassar version was but what is actually going on is a story of a father and a son and that's what we should concentrate on and I thought that was a great idea thinking that it would never be produced because I'm a pretty private person I know my father's a private person and then after those three days the reaction from the people that saw it in that early stage was so great that we thought, oh, maybe there's something here. Lorenzo Pisoni, in reading your biography, I noticed that your half-sister, your sister, Gypsy Snyder, played a major role in your life, yet you made the decision to 
excised her completely from this play. She's not mentioned at all. Yeah, no, I think I, I actually mentioned her only once, and it's in passing. The same with my mother. I mean, I, I, I think I mentioned her twice. And of course, they had huge impact in my life. How could they not? But that wasn't the play we were writing. And it seemed to us, as we kind of excavated all this stuff, that to make it clear enough for an audience and make it possible for someone to follow it, that we had to make sure that the only names you heard really were mine and my father's, so that the whole naming thing made sense later. And also just make it clear, because there would be a lot of explaining to do if I started to include my mother, include Gypsy, my sister, or, you know, any of that. And also you <coughs> made the choice to make it one act, one 90-minute show. Yes. I don't know that it was so much of a choice. Neither Erica nor I really enjoy halftimes, you know, in intermissions. We don't, we don't like that. Also, it's really hard to come back from an intermission, I would think. I've actually never seen a solo show in which there is an intermission. I think it would be really hard to kind of get the energy back after people have time to kind of think about it. Yeah, we just thought, let's just plug through. And originally, you know, it was 70 minutes. When we went to Philadelphia, we kind of supersized the show as the theaters have gotten larger, and so it's kind of now a pretty lean, but it's at 90 minutes, you know. At what point did you approach your father about using his hat, his trunk, and all the props? That was pretty early on. I mean, once Eric and I decided we were going to do it, I called my father and I said, would you lend me a few things? And he was very generous, and he said, yes, absolutely. Here you go. I'll, send, I'll FedEx it to you. You know, at first it was just the hat. And then later he sent me, once it, um, Manhattan Theater Club kind of picked it up, I, I asked him if I could use his jacket. I never wanted to explain to him what the show was. And in fact, he didn't see a script or know what the show really was until he saw it opening night in New York. That was my idea that that's how it would go. And it seemed like a good one until the night. And then I was, had regretted my decision. Were you pretty scared on stage? I mean, you're busy doing all this stuff and you can't screw up. I mean, right. that's one thing about it. But was it in the back of your mind, even with all that going on, that your dad was there watching you? Absolutely. I mean, I had prepared myself, like I said earlier, you know, I'm a fairly private person and so is he. And, and I had prepared myself for a certain amount of parts of the show that I... I was being honest, and these were things that I hadn't shared with him personally. And now I was going to do it in front of whatever, 100 people, 150 <laughs> people. So I prepared myself for a certain thing, but then other parts of the show surprised me and came up, and I wasn't prepared for those things, innocuous things, that I just hadn't thought, oh, my God, maybe that would affect him too. Likewise. You know, I say at one point in the show that I would... Uh, after my parents had, had split up, that I would stay at his house and, and I would miss my mother's home, which was just up the hill. And I had never said that to him. You know, things like that. But what's interesting is that the drop that I use in the show is the original Pickle Family Circus backdrop that my mother painted and from 1973 or 4, whatever it was. And where I enter, the drop has on either side of it, on the edges, my parents are, or images of my parents are juggling together from across the drop. And I never thought of this, but I enter, before I come on, I'm always facing the image of my father. And it wasn't until opening night in New York that I realized, oh my God, I'm standing in front of the image of my father, and now I'm going to go do this show. So, I mean, that's just a weird little coincidence. But, yeah, of course I was thinking about it the entire performance. It was a good performance that night, actually. You know, I had to do the show. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be fairly precise, and so my brain is multitasking, certainly, the entire show. But what's been interesting, actually 
about the show is that I've done it and then heard laughter from individuals that I recognize the laugh from being a little kid. And I don't know that they're in the house, but then, uh, sure enough, they come backstage afterwards, and it's people that I've known since I was six or seven or eight and, and I haven't seen since then. So oh. it's really interesting. At the beginning of the show, and you've said it here now, that you know you see yourself as the straight man, the not funny one. Mm -hmm. That gets the first laugh of the show, and people are laughing throughout. You're the funny one. <laughs> well, there's no one else on stage. I mean, they have, there's no, they have no choice. Um, no, I... I firmly believe this. I can recreate funny. I know how to construct funny. Uh, I've been around it all my life. But I'm not funny as a person. Uh, I can be witty, but there are certain people, and I, I've, been, I've been asked this before, and I, and I, I have yet to figure out a, a decent way to articulate it, but I feel like there are people like Zero Mostel that they walk into a room and they're just funny and you don't know what it is and I, and I don't think I possess that you know I walk in and people are like what's what's the problem well you also know timing though I mean I do yes yeah well and I think part of it was learned part of its innate but I think a lot of it has been studied for instance I can't tell a joke to save my life I can't do it uh, I screw it up or I start with the punchline or you know whatever it is but in this case specifically because the the premise is is so kind of outrageous that I think Erica was really influential in in kind of setting up and structuring the evening in such a way that it it's constantly funny and I firmly believe that I'm not funny and therefore it is funny. Well, I understand that one of the hardest parts of the show are not the acts because you've been doing them since you know God knows when. I mean, but the transitions between the acts is very very difficult. Yeah, and we've worked very hard to make them seamless. The acts are, are meant to forward the, the narrative and not just be, okay, and now an act. Because, you know, all of the acts are based in metaphor. And that's really what my father always did. Uh, he would take a metaphor and kind of create a clown act around it. Or, you know, whether he did it on purpose or not, that was uh, certainly a huge influence. But the transitions, the hardest part about the show, honestly, not to be redundant, but is the honesty and to make sure to keep myself in check that those in the audience have not heard the story before have not heard me tell the story before and just to talk to people that are sitting there is it harder than to play yourself than say to play another character in a play absolutely absolutely because when you're playing a role as much as you don't want to judge your character if anyone judges you you can say well that's that's written down that's what i'm supposed to do you can't blame me for it you know i don't have that defense in this case you're listening to an interview <clears throat> with lorenzo pisoni who's starring in humor abuse at act in san francisco through august 19th humor abuse the title the original variety show was abused in the name of humor or where did that come from actually i i believe jonah hoyle coined the phrase and it was really more in reference to what our fathers went through to get the funny because they kind of put themselves through all of it and my father's suffered a bunch of injuries just trying to be funny and kind of the rigor that goes into clowning you know it's hard because if someone hears it's a story about a father and son and there's abuse in the title people think child abuse you know i don't find my childhood abusive at all in fact you know all the lessons that i learned from my father through learning how to trip or 
acrobatics or whatever I apply in my everyday life. And I think they were good lessons. But yeah, so it's about what one has to go through to be a clown. As the play goes on, you take more and more clothing off, and there's more mm -hmm. and more clothing. Are you changing at all, or are you starting out with, like, ten shirts? I start out with ten shirts. And it must get pretty hot under there. Well, that's why I'm sweating so much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I start... It's great, because in my dressing room, there's a whole rack of clothing, and I put on every piece before the show starts. Yeah, I mean, because I never leave the stage, so there's no time for me to switch. But I like that... I like it that people think somehow I'm switching shirts at some point. I'm like, when when did you think I did that? How could I possibly have put on another shirt under the shirt you've seen me wearing? Yeah, that's great. How about bruises and contusions mm. just doing your act? Everything on the set is designed to look like one thing and actually acts like another thing. So the parquet floor is this kind of incredibly forgiving dance padded floor the stairs that i fall down are designed for falling down i am wearing all sorts of padding underneath all the shirts and whatever else you know so we've made it so that i can do it eight times a week you know that was one of the requirements <laughs> you mentioned in the show that your father would rarely tell you how to do something and you'd have to figure it out yourself on the other hand Learning how to fall mm -hmm. without hurting yourself, mm -hmm. learning how to do those tricks without hurting yourself, mm -hmm. somebody must have showed that to you. Yeah, no, I mean, he he would certainly talk to me about technique and, and how to do certain things, but when it came down to it, it was just a matter of practice, of doing it again, doing it again, doing it again. And also, you know, you have to remember, like anything else, you start like a musical instrument, you start with scales. And you do the scales up and down, up and down, arpeggios and all that. And that's the same. It's the same with, you know, how do you learn how to fall downstairs? Well, you don't go and find, you know, a full flight of stairs and just throw yourself down. One stair at a time. Basically, it's one stair at a time. You know, and I think that aspect of the training is, is you know, we don't have time in the show to kind of go over that. Plus, it wouldn't be as funny. But he certainly made sure that I was safe. And he would never just fling me down a flight of stairs or anything like that yeah he's a good teacher he's a very good teacher i have a confession to make i always hated clowns me too when i was a kid and i was in new york and we went to the circus at madison square garden sure. and i liked the elephants sure. and i liked loved the acrobats sure. but the clowns left me absolutely cold then suddenly to find this whole world of clowns i mean you just were saying you hated clowns too i mean yeah no clowns make me nervous but there's a whole history of that you know i mean like the the jesters would speak truth to power and whether they wanted to hear it or not that's makes for some discomfort and i think that because there are no rules with clowns no one is safe and therefore you can be very uncomfortable now certain clowns in the bigger shows like Ringling, you know, their function a lot of the time is not necessarily to be funny as much as it is to distract because they're changing the rigging or what have you. Now, a lot of them are funny, but they also have to create scenarios and gags that work for a huge space. And therefore, the subtlety is gone and it might just not be your bag, you know, because not everyone just likes a pie in the face for the sake of a pie in the face. I get that. Um, Do you? No, I don't. I really don't. But also, I grew up around 
my dad and Jeff Hoyle and Bill Irwin, and they don't do that. And I feel like because, like I was saying earlier, where there's so much metaphor involved in their clowning and, and narrative and all this stuff, I think it, it makes it easier to consume as an audience member. And you feel more taken care of or at ease because you kind of can understand what the person, what the clown is going through, and therefore you have some empathy. But if they're just out there and pies are flying and they're in crazy, grotesque makeup and costumes, you know, it's, it's off-putting. One of the things about the show is that whether you're in clown gear or not throughout the show, we yeah. always know it's Lorenzo Pisoni right. and we always know he's doing this on stage right. and you're the empathetic character. Right. A friend of mine who came to see the show, she said that basically. She said, it's not really a clown show at all. Right. It really is a play because the audience sees me through the characters when I kind of lapse into the more of the acts. And we also try to not use any sort of red nose until Lorenzo Pickle, you know, also for that reason as well, so that it's it's very clear that clowning can take on all sorts of forms, and also you can, as an audience, see it almost from the inside. Pickle Family Circus reinvented the circus. Years later, along came Cirque du Soleil. This is long before you joined them, but... When you first heard of Cirque du Soleil, what were your thoughts? I mean, knowing that this was a circus more in line with what you had been doing than Ringling Brothers. The first time I saw Cirque du Soleil was in 1987, and they were created in 1984. So they were very, very young. The first year that Cirque came to the States was 87, and the Pickles and Cirque kind of followed each other on a similar tour. So those two casts got to be very close. I thought they were great. That production is one of my favorites. It was called Roland Vente. Actually, it was before they had titles. It was just called Cirque du Soleil. It was small. It was a small circus. It was 1,500 seats in a tent. Yes, they had dry ice, but they didn't use it all the time. You know, you could follow the performers throughout the show, and, and they were all fabulous performers as well as technically incredible. And I remember, you know, being raised in kind of the lefty, Pickle Family Circus, it was kind of like, well, that's what happens when you have government funding. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of, that's what I remember about it. And so there wasn't any sort of antagonism or anything like that between the companies. Because, honestly, I feel like, yeah, my parents started the circus that, you know, changed, changed the landscape a bit. Just a little. And then Cirque du Soleil said, okay, that, that's great. We like that. And we're just going to take it and go a little further. And now, like my sister's company, Seven Fingers, they're now taking it and going a little further. So, you know, it's really, the lineage is very clear, and that, I think, is wonderful. Lorenzo Pisoni, you worked with Cirque du Soleil for a couple of years mm -hmm. in Vegas. What was the show that you worked I worked on Mystère. I was the ringmaster for Mystère. And how did that compare to working with Pickles? Well, I mean, first of all, it was stationary. They have this incredible theater in Treasure Island. The show had been going on for a while, so I stepped in, and I'd never done that before, this clown, Benny Legrand, that's his clown name, he was the clown at the time, and I basically took the job because I was going to be his straight man. And I had seen him in 1987 with Cirque du Soleil, and I just thought, he's of my father's generation, he has a similar kind of energy and intelligence as a clown that I just thought was great. And he just doesn't care, which is fantastic, and I knew it would be really fun to be his foil as much as I could be. So that was similar, you know, working with someone like that. But they have a lot of money, 
and I had multiple versions of my costume, and laundry was done for me, and I had a dressing room, and you know, so it was very luxurious as well. So it was kind of a nice mixture for me, and I was also very young. I mean, I, I arrived there; I was 20 years old. So you came there right out of Vassar. Yeah, pretty much. And then after that, that's when Eric <clears throat> called you back to New York to do Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I had been there for a while, and and I was actually in the middle of contract negotiations to re-up with Cirque or not. And she called me and said, I am doing this production of Romeo and Juliet, and would you like to come do it? And I'll give you a subway pass. In looking at your resume, there's a lot of Shakespeare. Yeah. Do you think that there's something about Shakespeare that is different than say other? Plays because of your background, or is it just that you happen to do Shakespeare? Well, Shakespeare is—it's a heightened reality. I mean, it, like a musical, these people have to speak in poetry. They don't choose to; they have to. And I think perhaps because of my performing background, my physicality can match the heightened language. Maybe that has something to do with it. And also, I think that's kind of what happened. I did Romeo and Juliet, and then the next year, Erica did this great cut of As You Like It. It was a six-person As You Like It, and that did very well in New York and got me seen by people, and therefore I went to work for Theater for New Audience with Peter Hall, and then all of a sudden I was just kind of doing Shakespeare with incredible actors and directors. And I think in part it was it was just that that's kind of where my career went. And you were in uh, All My Children? I was assistant district attorney Andrew Willis, and then... The district attorney was killed, so then I became the district attorney. How long were you working on that? Um, I guess I was there over six months, so I think I did like 30 episodes or something like that. It was great. Pickle Family Circus also had a, as you said, a very left-wing tilt. Your play doesn't really. How does your politics or the politics you grew up with affect your work today, or does it? The environment in which I grew up certainly has inspired me to ask why I'm doing the play I'm doing at the time I'm doing it. Or why even audition? You know, why is this play being produced? And so that kind of contextual perspective, I think, comes directly from San Francisco and from the Pickles and kind of having a, a more global view, such as it is. But I don't think politics influences too much of what I do. I guess it more influences what I don't do. <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. Well, it also means that selling out and going to L.A. could... <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I will sell out in a heartbeat. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I want to I make that very clear. I mean, it, because here's the thing. It's like, I don't actually think it's selling out. I've joked about that in the past, and I, and I think that that's actually... That's disingenuous, because... All my children made it possible for me to go do Shakespeare in the Park. And that's how it is. It's a day job. And, and honestly, those writers, yeah, yeah, they're selling soap, basically. But they have to generate 60 pages every day. And that's an art. I mean, you can call it commerce all you want, but I, I respect that. And those actors, they have to figure out how to tell that story, and that's an art. I certainly think that there's a lot of schlock out there on TV and in film and stuff like that. But I think if you're a responsible person in the world, you can go do your commercial whatever. And if you're worth your salt, you're going to turn around and do something that you really believe in. But you kind of have to, you have to balance it because that's the only way you'll survive as an artist. Lorenzo Pisoni. Well, now humor abuse has played New York, Philadelphia, Seattle... San Francisco, are you yeah. taking it elsewhere? I don't know. 
my thought was that this is where it would come to rest, mostly because I don't know how much longer I want to do it or can do it. You know, in this business where we don't have a lot of control, I wanted to say, okay, now it's over, and not have anyone else dictate that. We'll just see. We'll see. You've been listening to an interview with Lorenzo Pisoni, whose play Humor Abuse plays through August 19th at ACT in San Francisco. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. Savage Inequalities, and The Shame of the Nation and Amazing Grace, and many more tender, gritty books about America's children and their schools. Now his new book, Fire in the Ashes, is just coming out. KPFA, with the Oakland Education Association and the Berkeley Federation of Teachers, is honoring this occasion with a tribute to Jonathan Kozel and all public school teachers and public school workers. Please join us Friday, September 7th, 7.30 p.m. at King Middle School in Berkeley. That's 1781 Rose Street. There's wheelchair access and free parking. Anthony Cody, longtime teacher and writer on education, will host this KPFA benefit. Advanced tickets, $12 through brownpapertickets.com or at supportive independent bookstores. Tickets are only $5 for public school teachers, public school workers, and students. For these tickets, please call 510-549-2307 or 510-763-4020. Full information on the KPFA website for Jonathan Kozel and our endangered public schools.